Well, if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 25 through 26. So Galatians 5, 25 through 26. Now, weapons of war are always changing and evolving. Each year, our nation alone devotes billions of dollars to developing better, more effective ways to fight. From aircraft carriers to cruise missiles, we're always striving to stay one step ahead of our rivals. Now, despite the time, money, and the effort that we devote uh, to honing our military and to be what it is, in the past 20 years, the leading cause of death and injury to our troops hasn't really been superior technology. Actually, according to one study I read, 70% of injuries to, to soldiers in modern combat zones come from explosive devices, most of which have been made, are, are homemade, um, made from scavenging and cannibalizing parts that have been left over from previous co- uh, conflicts. They're extremely deadly, and they're difficult to detect because they can look simple, small. They can look like a tin can on the side of the road and completely knock a tank out of commission. Now, I heard a story the other day about a group of soldiers at the beginning of the conflict in Afghanistan who were with some local fighters who were kind of guiding them towards uh, where they were going to be engaging some Taliban fighters. Now, they noticed that these local fighters who were with them were walking really strangely, kind of hopping from one place to another. And it was significant enough that they asked them, what are you doing? And uh, when they asked them this, uh, the men said, ah, yes, uh, we are in a minefield. Uh, But it's okay, just step where we step. Now, when you're in a situation like that, every step matters, doesn't it? You can't afford to be clumsy in a situation like that. If you put your foot down in the wrong place, it may be the last step you ever take. Now, thankfully, these soldiers, who didn't even know they were in a minefield, had had a guide. They had someone who could show them their way out of a dangerous situation, someone who could bring them to safety. As long as they followed what they did, they were as safe as if they weren't in a minefield. But if they went their own way, they could have devastating results. All they had to do was to follow. They would be safe as long as they kept in step with their guides. Much like those soldiers, the churches in Galatia who first received this letter found themselves in a very serious situation. By being enticed to follow after a distortion of the gospel, after a false gospel, these churches had wandered into a a spiritual minefield. They were in a dangerous position, being lured to follow after old ways and to fulfill old desires, trusting in their own attempts to earn righteousness rather than relying fully on Christ's work for them. This wandering from the truth of the gospel had created disagreements and divisions in the church. Whether those divisions were solely over the situation at hand, uh, their response to these false teachers, or whether the pr- just the presence of these false teachers had only just exposed that spirit of rivalry that was already there, Paul stresses towards the end of this letter that it's time for the church 
to reunite together as one body around the truth of the gospel of grace which they had first received. And that's the focus of our passage this morning. At this point in the letter, we're kind of getting towards the end, Paul is working on setting the church back on the path of restoration. He is confident in the Lord that the churches who re- will, re- that they will receive his rebuke favorably and that they will re- they'll return to the gospel of grace that they had first received from him. So now, with that confidence in place, we see that his letter is really focused on healing, on restoring what's there, and reminding the members of these churches to walk according to the gospel of grace in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning in Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26. So let's read this together. If you would, please stand out of respect for God's word. This is the word of the Lord. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, as we discussed last week, there is a great and terrible conflict that rages in the heart of every believer. There's a struggle between the old desires of the flesh, which used to rule over us unopposed, and the new desires of the Holy Spirit as He works in us to perfect us and to sanctify us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. Uh, This is a process that lasts our entire lives. We'll never reach a point where we are fully sanctified, where where every desire of our heart is pure and good. But it is a process, and we're called to live, to fight in this conflict by the power of the Holy Spirit. The the words that Paul has here are intended to instruct us in how we are to live as believers in the midst of that conflict. The majority of what I have to say this morning is really directed at believers. But uh, it begins with the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, the gospel. So the main idea which we have this morning, which I have for you this morning, is this. Those who live by the Spirit must keep in step with the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, then you must keep in step with the Spirit. And in our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at three ways that we are called to live uh, to keep in step with the Spirit. And these these are these. um, Resisting pride, not provoking one another, and putting all envy to death. Now, the structure of this passage, so I learned my lesson from last week. I preached way too long. Uh, We're only doing two verses today. And the reason for that is because this is sort of a launch pad text that leads us into chapter 6. So the structure of this text, really we should, if we want to push it all together, this is sort of the the introduction for what we're going to look at next week. So there's this linear arc to this passage, which kind of flows into the rest of what Paul has to say in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. Most of what we're going to look at today is phrased in the negative. Now, verse 26 is a list of don'ts. Now, and I don't want you to think that this is all it means to walk by the Spirit. What we're going to look at today is linked to what we're going to look at next week. And we'll, we'll look more in depth at some of the positive aspects of what it means to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. These verses that we're looking at today are kind of those launch pad, it's the launch pad for those positive commands which teach us to resist the desires, to resist the works of the flesh that we talked about last week when we looked at verse 19. 
It all starts with the life that believers have in the Spirit and the way we are meant to live in the new identity that we have received in Christ. And then it travels on to Paul's main exhortation to refuse to become conceited so that we don't goad one another into evil and so that we don't envy one another for what they have. So this morning, I actually have four points for you, uh, which are these. First, step where the Spirit steps. Step where the Spirit steps. Second, purge pride. Purge pride. Third, don't push those buttons. Don't push those buttons. And finally, be content. Be content. Now, if you're going on a hike, if you're just simply going on a hike, you probably don't really pay attention to whether or not you're stepping on sticks, leaves, or twigs. Uh, you probably don't even hear them. It's a totally different ball game if you're hunting. Deer live and die by their nose and by their ears. If they hear you coming or if they smell you, the gig is up. You have to be careful. You have to reach out and feel with your foot before you actually step down so that you don't step on a stick and send every deer in the woods into the next county. Now, when I was first learning how to hunt, the friend who took me and showed me the ropes uh, stressed to me the importance of being quiet. I had to actually learn how to walk quietly because I'd never heard my own footsteps in the woods. I learned how to do that from watching him. And so when we would walk into the woods in the morning, I could only see, you could only see a couple feet in front of you, but I stayed close enough to him and I was focused on one thing. I didn't pay attention to where we were going. I paid attention to one thing. Walking where he stepped and walking when he stepped. Now that's the image that comes to my mind when I read verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, we have spent a considerable amount of time over the past year, really, talking about the Spirit and how He operates in the lives of Christians. Life in the Spirit means taking our direction from Him, following His, his guiding and His leadership, moving when He says move and moving where He tells us to go. The Spirit is the one who first opened our eyes to the reality of sin and our need for a Savior. The Spirit is the one who gives us a heart of faith to trust the Gospel. He opens our eyes to the Scriptures. He keeps us. He is the one who is in us to transform us, to keep us, and ultimately to give us victory over the desires of sin. Uh, living by the Spirit is really one of the key distinctions that defines a person who has been really united with Christ by faith. The objective work of Christ has an impact on our subjective experience of a relationship with Him. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in believers is that evidence of the new age which Christ has ushered in through His work on the cross. If the kingdom of God is like the dawning of the sun, then the work and the presence of the Spirit is like the rays of light that go out and warm the earth, exposing darkness and bringing life. Verse 25 is not a complicated verse, is it? It's a really simple if-then clause. Paul has already talked about how the Spirit works in believers, equipping us to resist the flesh by giving us 
better desires, new desires, freeing us from the condemnation of the law, producing in us the fruit of righteousness. And now, he uses a very intentional, conditional statement. If we live by the Spirit, then we ought to walk by the Spirit. Now, Paul does this very intentionally in an effort to get the believers who made up these churches to ask themselves whether or not they are really living in a way that accords with the life of the Spirit that they had first received. Now, I think that Paul expects the Galatians to say that they were indeed living by the Spirit. But he wants us to understand also that this is not something we should just assume. The moment when we take our eyes off this and get distracted with lesser things is the moment when we're no longer looking at the ground where the Spirit would have us to walk, but we're looking at the scenery around us. And it's extremely easy to wander from the path then. We need to regularly ask ourselves that if we are alive by the Spirit, if the Spirit lives in us, are we walking by the direction of the Spirit? Paul wants the, wanted the Galatians to, to see that this is something that it takes, our, it takes effort we're called to actively follow the leadership of the Spirit. I like how John Calvin puts it when he says that our walk by the Spirit, which corresponds to our works as believers, is evidence of the spiritual life. Since the Spirit of God cannot dwell in us without manifesting Himself by the outward effects. Which is to say that if the Spirit is in you, it's going to affect the way you live as professing believers who had received the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw in Galatians 3, 2. Paul expects the Galatians to affirm that the Spirit is living in them. And then he is asking them to take a look at their lives to see whether or not their lives are reflecting that reality. Life in the Spirit is an active thing. It's not as if we take our brains and our hearts out and just expect God to work through us uh, regardless of what we do. We're called to be actively seeking, actively walking. God's people are called to be a people of action. And the Spirit creates a restlessness within believers, giving us new desires and an ability to live in the freedom that is ours in Christ. This life in the Spirit is something that God actually ordained long ago. And it's something for every believer, not just for special ones, but for every believer. In Ezekiel 37, Uh, You may be familiar with this passage. The prophet Ezekiel tells us how he saw a vision of a valley that was full of dry bones. And as he looked at the remains of these slain people, these bones, the Lord told him to prophesy to the bones that they might live. And Ezekiel tells us that as he did so, that the bones came together, that they were dressed with sinew, muscle, and skin, but that there was no breath in them. They remained dead. Then the Lord told Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. And actually, um, if that is actually the same word for spirit. So prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And Ezekiel says that as he did, that the breath came into them and they stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, that's a bit of a strange image, isn't it? And in verse 14, God explains to Ezekiel that this is a picture 
of what he was going to do in the days ahead, that he was going to put his very spirit in his people and cause them to live, to dwell in their own land, so that they might know that he is the Lord. And then further into the passage, he promised that he was going to set a king over them who would establish and rule with an everlasting covenant so that God says he will dwell in the midst of his people and that the nations of the world would see and know his glory. Ezekiel's vision and God's promise became a reality in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. There and in Acts 3, Peter, the apostle, explained that the arrival of the Spirit was in response to the work of King Jesus who had fulfilled God's plan of salvation through his own suffering and through his resurrection. In Acts 10, we see that the gift of the Spirit was then expanded to include the nations, showing that God had ordained men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be included in his covenant people. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, we saw how Paul reminded the Galatians that they had received this very Spirit through the hearing of the gospel and through faith in the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The point of all of this is that we are called, as a people who have been united to Christ by faith, to live by the power of the Spirit. And we live by the Spirit by keeping in step with the Spirit, walking as He directs us to walk. This is what it means to live in the new age as members of the new covenant under the reign and the rule of King Jesus as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We enjoy this new life and the promise of what is to come even now, but we wait on the final consummation of that life when we're gathered and perfected in the presence of Christ. And until then, we're called to walk, to live life in step with the priorities of the Spirit according to the leading of the Spirit. Uh, That's the pattern for life in the new age of the gospel. This is our inheritance in Christ. We go from being dead in sin, dry bones, laying laying cursed under the sun, being willing servants to the tyranny of sin, to being a living army clothed in the righteousness of Christ with the Spirit of God breathing life into us. If He lives in us, then we ought to walk as he does, to step where he steps, carefully and enthusiastically, all to the praise of Christ and God the Father. Now, tell me, this seems like kind of basic ideas of Christianity, right? Why do you think Paul thought it was necessary to say this? It seems pretty apparent that if the Spirit lives in you, if he's given you new desires, if he's working in you to bear fruits of righteousness, then you ought to live your life in step with him. Uh, That seems pretty obvious, right? So why does it need to be said? Well, it needs to be said because though we have been given the Spirit and though we have been called to walk in new life with him, we still live in battle with the old desires. We still battle against the flesh. Like that company of soldiers that found themselves in the minefield, we are surrounded on every, every side with dangers, old desires that are opposed to the Spirit, in conflict with the Spirit. So we have to live with intentionality. We have to 
be careful about how we walk. We ought to be, we are to be paying attention to the way that we go, keeping in step with the Spirit, not just walking in His general direction, but matching our strides with His, stepping in the very footsteps of Christ, who has prevailed over the powers that once enslaved us. And that brings us to the first practical way that we are called to walk with the Spirit. And that is this, to be purging pride. So that's our second point this morning, purge pride. In verse 26, Paul says, let us not become conceited. Now, conceit is the opposite of humility. And therefore, conceit is the opposite of the mind of Christ. A conceited heart will not be subject to anyone. It lives for itself. And so, it is opposed to the priorities of the grace of God. Conceit, pride, arrogance, they all lead to the sort of provoking and envying uh, each other that Paul says that we must avoid there in verse 26. Now, in one of his sermons, Augustine of Hippo labels pride as the foremost of all evil. He says that pride is the beginning, the root, and the cause of all sin. Now, if we explore that, we'll see that Augustine is right. Pride is what led to the downfall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They gave in to the serpent's deception because though God had made them in his image and had given them dominion over creation and had commissioned them to be stewards with every blessing of royalty in that creation, they desired more. They desired to be gods themselves. And so they chose not to stay in step with the commands of God, but chose instead to rebel against him. And that rebellion was the downfall of humanity. Pride is not the way of Christ. Conceit is not the way of the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2, Paul tells the church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as the Son of God, Jesus had every reason to lay hold, to lay claim to the, the glory and the authority that was his. But the path of Jesus' exaltation was not self-exaltation. It was the path of the cross. Jesus did not have a conceited heart. He emptied himself of his glory. He wasn't born in the house of a king. He, wasn't, he was born in a stable, and he was laid in a manger. He lived his life as a sojourner. He lived as a peasant. His parents were not well-to-do. He associated in his ministry with the lowly, and, and he opposed the proud. He tells us that he dwells with the lowly and the contrite of heart. In his teaching, he tells us that we are not to do any deed in order to be noticed by men, but to be satisfied in knowing God. Jesus tells us to have equal regard for the poor in the same way that we regard the rich and the influential. He commissioned fishermen, a tax collector, and even a persecutor of the church to be his apostles. Because Jesus embraced our shame, we have glory. 
Because he embraced suffering, we have peace. Because he embraced our weakness, we are made strong. A conceited heart has no place with Christ. It is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is the cross. When Paul says that we must keep in step with the Spirit, he begins by saying that we must purge pride from our hearts. Just as a a root of a plant crawls under the surface of the ground before that plant sprouts up, so is the corruption of conceit and pride. Pride is the, the product of the flesh, and it is the enemy of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Pride is a threat because our fleshly desires still remain, and we like to feel good about ourselves. It's a threat to the unity of the church and the mission of the church because it tries to get our eyes off of Christ and onto ourselves. In this section of Galatians, Paul is trying to get the churches back on track, living in the truth. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul is going to lay out some instructions for the members of the churches to forgive one another and to restore one another. It's like he's there setting up a spiritual hospital to deal with all the fallout and the destruction that's been caused by this toxic distortion of the gospel. Now, a, physical, a prideful physician can heal you of your physical pains. You don't have to have a humble doctor to feel good. But to heal a heart takes humility. Jesus secured our healing through his humble service. And if we are to love one another, if we are, if we are to serve one another as he has served us and called us to do, then we must begin by purging the pride that so easily slips into our hearts. A prideful heart can be easy to spot in everyone but ourselves. So how do we diagnose this condition? And that's what we want to look at in our next two points. Two visible ways that pride affects the way that we treat one another. First, our, our, our third point here is don't push those buttons which is that we provoke each other to wrath. A prideful heart delights in provoking others. Now, siblings are the very best at pushing our buttons, aren't they? I'm looking at you, Arnaldis. They, 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 brothers and sisters, they, they know just what to say. And more importantly, they know just how to say it to get us upset, don't they? They know where those tender spots are. They know how to get under the armor that other people don't know how to get under. And there's a cruel part of every one of us that likes seeing other people squirm and wriggle when they're uncomfortable. Some of the deepest scars aren't dealt to us by our enemies, but they're dealt to us by our friends and even our families. Now, I would like to say that life in the family of God doesn't ever have any of that. It shouldn't, but it does. Because the flesh is still working to bring us in conflict with each other. The heart of such a conflict, as I've mentioned, ultimately is pride. People pick on each other because for some reason it makes us feel better about ourselves. Uh, We bring attention to the weaknesses of our brother and our sister, our wives or our husbands, hoping that no one will notice our own weakness. Here in the middle of verse 26, Paul says that we must not indulge pride by provoking each other. Don't touch that button. 
The idea that Paul has in mind here is the same idea as when you have two prize fighters getting up in each other's faces. Now, I don't really pay attention to professional fighting, but I have seen plenty of videos of boxers and MMA fighters uh, who are there for their weigh-in day, and you know, they're flexing, and they're showing off what they've done, all their training. And then at the very end, they get those two fighters together, and they stand there, head-to-head, just growling at each other like they have rabies, staring into each other's eyes, saying all kinds of nasty things to each other under their breath, daring, just just daring them. Take a swing. Let's get into this. Why do we even need to wait for the main event? Let's go right now. It, that, that is the idea that Paul is getting out here. It's, it's the same sort of thing that he described when he was talking about the works of the flesh. These are rivalries, dissensions, divisions, looking at the other person as if they are their enemy. It's the attitude that I'm better than you and I'm going to show it. I want to show you up. I'm going to get under your skin. Now, let's ask ourselves this. Do you get a certain amount of joy in getting under other people's skin? You just kind of, there's a little part of you, maybe you wouldn't admit it, but yeah. Yeah, I kind of like to see him wiggle like that. Is there a person at work that you just love showing up? Do you find yourself divulging information to people, whether it's rumor or fact, which you know is going to tear them down or make them angry and they might do something really stupid? Do you get a little satisfaction in tempting your siblings to do something and then telling your parents what they've done? Do you rejoice when someone you have no respect for falls on their face in just total shame? Do you like picking on others? Do you take exception to others? Are you a master of passive-aggressive comments? Comments that aren't necessarily wrong, but they have a jagged edge and they cut people to the core. I I could go on. You're getting the picture, right? That's provoking responses. Provocative words and provocative actions. Pushing people's buttons to see them twist and squirm. That comes from a proud heart. That comes from a selfish heart. And it shows us that pride is not a private sin, is it? It creates divisions. It creates rivalries. And when we allow it to go on, when we find ourselves not rejoicing in peace and love and in the truth, but rather in the downfall of others, when we provoke each other to wrath, or when we say things to each other that we know won't stir that person up to righteous acts, but will stir them up in anger and in frustration, we're not living in step with the Spirit. We're throwing rocks at landmines, seeing if they'll blow up. Christians are called to be provoking each other. But we're called to be provoking each other to righteousness and love. The purpose of of iron sharpening iron isn't to make sparks. It's to have sharp blades, weapons of war for fighting in this actual conflict against the forces of darkness. Our beef is not with each other. Our beef is is with those rulers, those rulers and those principalities who seek to lead us away from Christ and to exert their own will over us. So how do we fight that? Well, we chase out prideful motives by considering and acting on the basis of the needs of our brothers and sisters. We put others' needs before our own. That is the way of Christ. Now, if we're honest, we're all guilty of provoking each other to wrath. 
whether we do it intentionally or not. One of the best ways to kill pride is to confess to each other when we realize that we've acted out of a selfish motive. So don't waste time allowing cruel comments to linger. Those are like, they they burn relationships like acid burns skin. So put pride to death by putting the needs and the welfare of others above your own, just as Christ did. Walk by the Spirit, asking the Spirit to show you not how you can get under someone's skin, but how you can build them up. Not so that you might tear them down, but that you might be a perfecting force in their life for Christ. That brings us to the second way that pride shows itself in our lives. And that's the way of envy. And that brings us to consider our fourth point. Be content. Be content. Envy is not exactly a sin that I think we talk about a lot. We all have pet sins that we like to denounce. But we don't talk about envy very often. Envy is a combination of pride and idolatry. It is bitterness that someone has something that we don't. It's what Cain, it's the heart of Cain, when he saw how God had rejected his sacrifice, but though he had received Abel's, his brother's, that he responded to that reality. Rather than repenting that his offering was not enough, that he had not done well, instead he hated both God and his brother. And because of his envy and his bitterness, he murdered his brother. Envy blinds us to the blessings that we have received. It is inconsistent with the heart of faith. It is inconsistent with the gospel of grace. Since what the gospel of grace preaches to us is that we have received blessings in Christ which we do not deserve. A heart of envy is out of step with the Spirit. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells us how there were two brothers. The younger brother was foolish. He demanded, hatefully so, that his father give him his inheritance. And then he took that inheritance and wasted it on foolish living in a foreign land. Now when he finally was brought to the end of himself, He realized what he had done and he sought his father's forgiveness, asking only to be able to earn his place in his father's house as a servant. But when the father received his lost son with joy and thanksgiving, the house erupted in gladness, all except for one person, the older brother. The older brother could not believe it. He hated his younger brother for what he had done. And he refused to come to the feast Even so that when his father, his own father, came to appeal to him, he spoke to his father angrily. He was upset that his father had shown such regard for a fool as his younger brother. He complained to his father how he had not even given him a young goat so he could celebrate with his friends, but had killed the fattened calf for his rebellious brother. Now Jesus told that parable to the shame of, of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who thought very highly of themselves and of their merits and complained about the way that Jesus showed regard for sinners and the, low, and the lowly. Everything that we have, this is something we must remember, everything that you have is yours by grace. Everything that you are is a matter of grace. 
And whether we receive riches and blessings or poverty and need, if you are in Christ, then you have received an immeasurable, an immeasurably rich inheritance in Him. Because you've been made, not a servant in God's house, but a son and an heir with Him. We've been made the very children of God. How, after receiving that, can we even entertain the idea of an envious heart? And yet we do. And when we do have an envious heart, we expose that our hope and our delight isn't in our Heavenly Father, but rather in what He can offer us. The same as the older brother behaved when he saw the way that his father received his brother. That is a desire that comes out of the same pride that led Adam and Eve to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to eat it. Envy is the heart of the servant who has been forgiven a great debt, a debt that he could never repay, who then went and threw his fellow servant into debtor's prison because he owed him a couple of dollars. Envy is a, is a toxic thing. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Now I have seen and experienced how envy can make relationships rot. I have seen how envy can stir up toxic bitterness that just sucks the joy out of everything. Envy will drive us to do unthinkable things. It really is a rot, a, a disease that begins on the inside and then spreads to our acts and makes us intolerable of each other. The church cannot thrive if we maintain envious hearts towards one another. And so we must root it out. How do we do that? Well, simply, we keep in step with the Spirit. Have you ever noticed how the Holy Spirit works in each and every one of God's people, always pointing our attention, not to Himself, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Have you ever, you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how Jesus refused to exalt Himself, but always chose to exalt His Father? Have you ever noticed how God the Father has chosen to exalt Jesus as the Savior and the Lord so that as He is glorified, the Father is pleased and He Himself is exalted? If we are to walk by the Spirit, then it means that we need to look at our lives as instruments not to procure glory for ourselves, but to draw attention to the glory of King Jesus. The best way to fight envy is to have greater desires for greater things than what this world can offer us. These desires come from the Spirit. But as Paul indicates here, we grow into those desires by keeping in step with Him. It's not as if this is a totally passive thing. As if we confess our faith in Christ and then we go sit on a pew and we don't do anything with our lives. This is meant to be an active action. We exercise the grace that we receive so that as we do, we develop tastes of heaven and desires for the glory of Christ, which we did not have before and which have been given to us now. Now, envy is something that can come on us quickly with a surprising ferocity. At one moment, we're happy and we're content, and then the next moment, we're consumed with just how unfair this life is. Envy is more than just desire. It's resentment that we don't have what we want. It's a coldness towards others that simply can't count someone else's joy as our own joy, but counts their joy as our sorrow. Desire is not necessarily a bad thing. 
Uh, God has made this world with good things in it that point us to his own goodness. And it's right and it's good to enjoy those things to his glory. But we have to be careful because those good things can be corrupted into idols very quickly, sometimes without even realizing it. And suddenly we'll catch ourselves thinking ill of someone because they have what we want and we want it. And we think that God is unfair because he's given to them and not given to us. We fight this by going back to the basics, remembering that for those who are in Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Christian life is so much more than holding to a list of do's and don'ts. It's dynamic. It's about a relationship with God. Even so, we must be on our guard to refuse to submit to anything that would impede us from walking by the Spirit. And so this morning we have briefly considered how pride, rivalry, and envy can poison the church. Like landmines that are difficult to detect, these works of the flesh have a way of infiltrating our lives rather quietly, that is, until they blow up. And so we have to live on edge, always looking, always following, fighting those desires, and walking by the power of the Spirit who lives in us. May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome. We thank you that even though uh, we are given to pride and division and envy, that you have conquered those things which we could not in our own power. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us what it means to love. And that as you have shown us what it means to love, you have called us and commanded us to follow you in that love. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your own Son, Jesus Christ, to, be the penalty, to bear the penalty of our sin. And we thank you that you have sent your Spirit to live in us, to show us the way. And we pray, Father, that you would give us grace to do that, and that in the coming weeks ahead, that we would love one another as you have loved us. And I pray all this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.